Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. We are bombarded with news and numbers every day about the coronavirus pandemic. To what extent does that information help us make more rational choices versus creating needless worry? And when it comes to following guidelines such as mask wearing, what roles do morality and partisanship play in changes of our behavior? For psychologists, understanding how and why people act the way they do in a crisis can help public health officials optimize their work. And coming up, we'll talk with two scientists at the forefront of this research. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Why do some people embrace masks and practice meticulous social distancing while others rebel against public health mandates? Psychologists are studying what drives behavior during the pandemic, and they're also looking at how information overload influences how people react to the crisis. In this hour, psychologists Ellen Peters and uh, Jay Van Bailville join us to lay out how social and behavioral science can help explain individual responses to the COVID-19 pandemic and how health and public policy officials can communicate better with the public about containing the virus. Let me first of all welcome Ellen Peters, who's psychologist and director of the Center for Science Communication Research at the University of Oregon and author of Innumeracy in the Wild, Misunderstanding and Misusing Numbers. Welcome, Professor Peters. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank, thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. Also a pleasure to have and welcome Jay Van Bavel, who is Associate Professor of Psychology at New York University. Welcome you to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you as well. And Ellen Peters, let me begin with you. I know this project got underway back in February with a grant from the National Science Foundation and uh, it was to try to sort of measure reactions of Americans to the pandemic. It was still going on in China. It hadn't hit us yet. But I know there have been a lot of follow-up and a lot of research on this. So let me begin by asking you the question in terms of um, 
what I asked in my introduction, how do we uh, explain or what do we know at this point about what separates people who want to follow public health dictates from those who want to defy them? Yeah, so, so we have been doing this, uh, th this uh, longitudinal survey that was funded by the National Science Foundation um, uh, since, since mid-February, and we've actually followed up on it four times now. And there, you know, there are a variety of things that, that are related to who is taking on protective behaviors, who is doing basic um, hygiene, you know, doing basic hygiene, wearing, wearing masks, practicing social distancing. Um, we can start with the idea that um, people who are tracking the statistics every day, so people who um, basically they're, they're monitoring the news more for coronavirus statistics, they're actually much more likely to um, be doing all of these protective behaviors. On the other hand, people who are good at math, people who are highly numerate are actually less likely to. And then we can also see if we go to political ideology, we see um, that, that for, some, uh, for some protective behaviors, it makes no difference. For things like basic hygiene, in our survey, political ideology makes no difference whether you're conservative or liberal. Thank goodness you wash your hands, you try not to touch your face. Um, but if you look at, um, at, at other protective behaviors like social distancing, that's where we start to see more of a divide with liberals being more likely um, to, to socially distance than, than conservatives. Well, you've written about your husband. I think you call him a number stalker. And there is, uh, <laughs> there is a problem of information overload for many people. Too many uh, people just get on needless worrying and, and certainly get uh, overly worked up and anxious about the fact, uh, I think you call them uh, number stalkers and say this is more men than it is women. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of people are more apt to be influenced, I, I believe you have come out in your research, by the stories they hear, by what their neighbors say, by anecdotes, by particularly emotional reactions. Yeah, absolutely. So, so statistic stalking does make a difference. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean for everybody who statistic stalks that they overly worry, but they do tend to worry more for sure. Um, what, what ends up happening is that, uh, you know, we are we are emotional creatures by nature. We, you know, we, we, react, we understand and react to information more in an experiential kind of way than in a, in a logical way. Um, and because of that, stories and anecdotes tend to have a big influence on us, just as our emotional reactions do. That, that tends to be more true for people who are, who are less good at math, but, but it's, it's really true for all of us, simply be, because we, we rely on our experiences to guide us into our futures. And Professor Van Bevel, if I can bring you in, uh... This often looks, uh, at least from the perspective of a lot of the work that you've done, as a division or a kind of binary in terms of partisanship. Yes, so we have data uh, actually nicely complements what Ellen just said, where we analyzed uh, over 15 million smartphones per day for several weeks. And we looked at what happened in counties that tended to be uh, Democratic versus Republican or support Trump versus Clinton in the last presidential election. And we found clear evidence in real movement in all of these counties, um, such that people who supported Trump over Clinton tended to engage in 14% less physical distancing between March and May. And then the consequence of not engaging in this physical or social distancing uh, was we were able to use that data to predict increases in uh, later infections and mortality rates in those counties. And so what this means is that it's not only that what people are reporting in these polls, seems to be mirrored in their actual behavior of millions and millions of people, um, but that it has real consequences that are truly life or death consequences for these people. 
You also studied, I believe, a lot of how misinformation affects behavior. There are links between, for example, nationalism and belief in conspiracy theories. Yes, so we have been, oh, uh, sorry, yes, we've also been studying uh, belief in conspiracy theories, and we have found that people who are uh, what we call collective narcissists, so these are people who have an inflated and fragile sense of their national identity rather than a kind of secure and stable sense of national identity, those are the people who are looking for reasons to believe uh, that their country is better than every country. And they're the ones who are more likely to latch on to these conspiracy theories about, you know, for example, the virus being created in a lab and weaponized against them, uh, or for example, um, you know, the virus being caused by 5G towers. These types of ideas that are circulating all over the internet right now uh, are particularly appealing to those types of individuals. And, and we've also found that that has health consequences, that they're less likely to engage in certain types of health behaviors if they believe in this misinformation. Where does this leave in the trajectory? Where does this lead us in terms of what policymakers need to know or what they need to communicate or how they need to send messages to the um, public? So that's a really important question. And this is a paper that Ellen and I wrote with uh, about 40 other experts across the social sciences a couple months ago. And we said that science communication is gonna be one of the most important factors to solve this pandemic, at least until we have a vaccine and a, a proper treatment. Um, so effectively, what we're trying to do now is convince leaders to use these principles, which is communicate clearly and repeatedly to find leaders who are part of the in-group for different audiences. So this might mean going into YouTube and having uh, people who are influencers online do it. It might mean uh, certainly political leaders, but also from all parties. So it's not just from one set of parties who are passing on this information. And those are the types of uh, communicators who are going to be really important for ensuring that you get broad uh, agreement with the population about things like wearing a mask and physical distancing. And what are the implications, Ellen Peters, with respect to risk assessment in terms of COVID? I mean, uh, risk assessment seems to be influenced a great deal by what media uh, outlets people are tuning in or what they are listening to as well as reading. And so uh, they're being, to some extent, shaped and maybe configured by those influences. Uh, wh where do your conclusions lead in terms of the consequences there? Yeah, so d depending upon who you're listening to, you're getting different information and you're getting different signals in terms of what you should worry about and what you shouldn't worry about. Um, and it, th this is one of those situations where uh, normally, again, we look back towards what's happened in the past and what we've learned from it, and then we apply that learning to the future. But here we have something totally new that none of us have ever experienced. So it's like we're driving in the dark without GPS. And because of that, we're using whatever our news sources are as our GPS signal. Normally that works pretty well, but in this case, with the political divisiveness that's going on, it seems to have gone awry. So that some people are ending up fearing more and, and taking on more protective actions. Some people are fearing less and taking on quite a bit less. Well, you also write about the importance of social norms. We need to somehow, I think the implication is reinforce uh, social norms that are healthy and that promote good health. But there are too many who simply will not accept good health. Even in light, for example, today, uh, actually the figure came out yesterday, but it's all over today's newspapers. Johns Hopkins new data, a milestone yesterday of deaths uh, that have now passed a half million. There are those who look at those numbers and say, well, you know, those same numbers apply to the flu <laughs> uh, or numbers close to them and uh, still are unwilling necessarily or unable to recognize uh, the portent. And it's a pretty serious portent of what those numbers mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there is some recent um, evidence and modeling that suggests that if 80% of us wore face masks, 
then we could really slow down the spread of the, the viral spread of this disease. And so using social norms um, from, and, and this is sort of what Jay was saying, using social norms from influencers who are, who are similar to the people you're trying to influence can actually, um, could, could actually make a big difference. So showing, for example, pictures of former Vice President um, Dick Cheney, who now wears a mask on a regular basis, apparently, that um, may end up helping us to get more people to buy into the best science we have available in this situation. Uh, Vice President Pence even put on a mask recently, though, for the most part. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't wear them for the most part. But I go back to you, Jay Van Babel. Uh, there's um, certainly a psychologist. I know you've done a lot of uh, research also on the ill effects of isolation on people, the stress, the loneliness, uh, but also importance of understanding the effect of language. For example, it may seem like a minor point to people, but to say physical distancing as opposed to saying social distancing seems to have maybe a more ameliorative effect? Yeah, so one thing that's happening right now, um, I saw data on this a couple days ago, that Americans are less happy now than they have been, I think, since they've been measuring it. Um, so many, many decades. And part of that, obviously, there's a lot of things going on. There's a pandemic, uh, there's national protests. But one of the issues is massive social isolation. It's incredibly hard for people. Um, according to some scientists, we were already having a pandemic of loneliness uh, before this struck. So what we need to do is to find ways to help people connect. And this is especially true of people who are lonely or isolated or elderly people tend to be very socially isolated. And so um, part of the way we communicate with people helps guide them towards healthy behaviors like keeping a distance. Um, but we want them to maintain social connections so they don't get depressed um, and put themselves at risk for all kinds of other problems associated with depression. Like we know that it affects uh, mental and physical wellness. So what we're trying to do is encourage people to use a language that communicates that you need to keep a physical distance between yourself and others to reduce the risks of infection. But at the same time, you need to maintain that social connection or that social distance from people. And so ways that people can do that Obviously, uh, as we're doing right now, online, virtually, um, call your mom or your dad or your grandparents up on the phone or an old friend. Uh, I have a, uh, a good colleague of mine who does Zoom dinners with his whole extended family from across the country now every Friday. So there's lots of things you can do to stay connected. Um, we're also finding if you wear the mask, like Ellen suggested, uh, get outside where it's less likely to spread and maintain a distance, you can actually interact with people more safely. So there's lots of ways to do this, to have that social connection, as long as you sustain that physical distance. You know, I'm looking at uh, some comments are coming in and we'll go to what our listeners have to say and ask in just a moment here. But uh, a listener writes, uh, vociferous Republican opposition of wearing masks, for example, is no different than their dismissal of global warming concerns. They are guided by cult allegiance to reckless leaders who show contempt for science. But without necessarily uh, going too deeply into partisan politics here, I'm struck by that comment in light of uh, a question I have for you, Jay Van Vabel, and that is because um, I think you've made connections between your research and the conclusions that you've come to in terms of the consequences and the challenges of reducing climate change as well as increasing vaccinations. We've just learned, for example, that we probably wouldn't get enough compliance if we had a, even a, a vaccine tomorrow to get toward herd immunity. Uh, so behavior not only affects what we're going through now in terms of pandemic, but this existential crisis of climate change. And there, there are analogies to that and, and just, well, vaccinations. 
Yeah, so those are often called social dilemmas, which means that we all need to do something small so that everybody in society benefits. And that might mean wearing a mask. Um, it might mean traveling less to reduce climate change. Uh, it might mean getting a shot, even if you're not at risk, because that provides herd immunity, which saves elderly people or people with compromised immune systems who can't get the shot. Um, so these are all things that society needs to do to protect everyone's well-being. But if people opt out of that, it puts not only themselves at risk, but it puts everybody else at risk. And so this is turns out to be a, a particular problem in some countries more than others. So I'm Canadian. Uh, in Canada, they, for example, which is right across the border, Canadians in most ways are no different than Americans. Um, they've been much more able to manage the spread of the pandemic. Um, they're also, you know, uh, supportive of uh, climate change initiatives like the Paris Accord. They didn't remove themselves from that. Um, they don't have the same uh, polarization there. So there is a study analyzing the Twitter accounts of liberal and conservative leaders in Canada and found that they're all on the same page. And then if you do surveys there, you find that liberals and conservative uh, Canadians tend to all be generally supportive of uh, these public health behaviors. And so well, there's an old line, uh, which you've probably heard, that Canadians are no different than Americans, except they all have health care and very few of them have guns. But um, we're also thinking about what leaders can do in the, in the light of all of this and the research that uh, you and uh, Professor Peters have provided for us. Uh, there's this whole phenomenon, really, that I'd like you to address also of what they call free riders with masks, particularly. That is, people who decide, well, I don't have to wear a mask because other people are wearing masks. It's not necessarily even that they're opposed to masks. They're just free riders. Yeah, so free riders pose a problem to uh, social cooperation that you might decide if everybody else gets vaccinated or wears a mask, maybe you don't have to because your risk is lower. Um, the problem is that if everybody does that, then we're all at risk. And this has been a problem with vaccinations for polio and measles in schools. And then if people don't get those vaccinations, kids again with compromised immune systems get put at risk and they're more likely to die. So that is why that you need everybody in society, if they can, to buy into these things. And it protects the weakest and the most compromised among us. And then what do we do again, uh, Ellen Peters, I go back to you with respect to how leadership ought to comport themselves uh, in the wake of this pandemic uh, and what leaders can best learn from the kind of research that you and Professor uh, Van Babel are providing for us. I ask that question with bearing in mind the fact that we have the President of the United States who has been kind of optimistically selling a lot of people on the idea from early on, at least everything is going to be okay and uh, these uh, numbers don't really mean anything and, uh, and, and himself uh, refuses to wear a mask and so forth. Uh, I mean, those do have impact. They do make a difference, particularly in, uh, among supporters of the president and those who he has impact on. That makes a huge difference. Um, he, he's even come out recently uh, talking about the idea that uh, people who wear masks are, are making a political statement against him. Um, all of this, every one of our messages from our political leaders should be clear and consistent and they should be based on, on the science that's available. Um, it, it's, um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you what we need to do about um, the, the leaders who aren't doing that, but we as voters, we as citizens need to be encouraging our political leaders um, to, to turn more towards the science in this case, because that in the end is what's going to keep all of us safe. And if they don't, we are just going to see more of our our sons, our mothers, our, grand, our grandparents um, pass away from this disease. And even among those people who don't pass away, people who simply get the disease end up um, suffering pretty, 
pretty badly. It's not, it's not an easy disease to have. In fact, let me read a comment from a listener named Robert who says, the president stated that mask wearing is a sign of political protest against him, as we just heard from Professor Van Bevel. And this listener, Robert, goes on to say, he sets the standard for tens of millions of loyal followers. What more do we need to know? And another listener, KD, writes, I was a skeptic about wearing masks outdoors and social distancing. Then my entire household caught COVID in June. A household member caught it at work and spread to everyone else. Now I wear a mask even in my house at times and everywhere outdoors. COVID is real and hard to shake off. And again, uh, we get back to, well, the media here, Ellen Peters, in terms of you, you see these stories and the focus on these stories have a great deal of dramatic effect, I think, of people who claim that they were complete non-believers in any of what public health officials were telling them they needed to do. And there they are with a ventilator or just coming off a ventilator. I mean, these stories have a lot of impact, but they're curated stories. They are curated stories, but those kind of curator, curated stories can end up having, influence, having influences on us. It's like what we were talking about towards the beginning of this hour, that, that, that power of compelling stories and anecdotes um, it, they have to be true and they have to be credible, but they can be incredibly powerful for people because, and for a couple of reasons. One, they, they can be persuasive. You can suddenly realize, oh, maybe I should be paying attention. Um, but, but they can also, they, they communicate information that we just might not have realized before. Like it's one thing to say, oh, my friend had COVID. It's something else to describe the experience of having that disease. And it may be that what we need to be doing and what the media needs to be doing is putting out more of these stories that better describe what the, the course of that disease is like. There's going to be variation. Some people really aren't going to be that affected. But there's a fair proportion of people who, even though they don't die, even though they don't even end up on a ventilator, um, they go through quite a bit of, of just bad experiences. I've, I have a good friend in Sweden uh, who's he's very young. He's maybe 30, 35 years old. And he said it felt like he was being hit by a truck and for like a month. One of the stories that probably has not been told enough is going back historically to the Spanish flu and the best public health practices, and this has pretty much been documented, meant, uh, well, more robust economics. Uh, so uh, in terms of behavior, it's one thing, but history has to be tied in with that as well. Uh, I'm going to invite our listeners to join us. We've got comments coming in and I'll get to them, but I also want to invite you to join us by phone and you can do that now. Has the, well, how has the pandemic changed your behavior and why? You can give us a call right now and let us know what your thoughts are about that or what your own personal experience is. Our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. And we invite you to join us at that number. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. And again, we're talking about how social and behavioral science can help explain how people respond to the pandemic with Ellen Peters, psychologist and director of the Center for Science Communication Research at the University of Oregon and author of Innumeracy in the Wild, Misunderstanding and Misusing Numbers and Jay Van Babel, who is associate professor of psychology at New York University. And here's a listener who says, as we come up on a break here, how do the inconsistent messages from health and public officials factor in here? Early on, we were told not to wear masks because they were needed for healthcare professionals. Now most masks are not medical grade. So it seems like it would have been so much more effective to wear face coverings months earlier. Jay Van Babel, to you. Yeah, so the science on this and the health practices are evolving in real time as we're getting more information. 
Um, and so there's obviously this subset of people like Ellen mentioned who are plugged into all this news. I'm one of those news junkies about COVID, constantly changing my behavior based on the news and science as I get it. Um, the other issue, however, is that some of the conversation and some of the suggestions have been mixed. So originally there was a suggestion that it might not have been best to wear masks um, or that the masks were needed for medical professionals because there were not simply enough, especially medical grade masks for frontline staff, nurses, doctors. Um, but as that has evolved, there have been more and more studies and more and more public health recommendations that we need to wear masks. So I, my philosophy as a scientist is that we're always learning more and our knowledge is evolving and so our behavior has to evolve with it. Well, we're talking again about how social and behavioral science can help explain how people respond to the pandemic. And you are once again invited to join us if you have some thoughts or if you have something you'd like to ask or if you simply want to talk about how the pandemic has changed your behavior and why, you can join us toll-free at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or on Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about how social and behavioral science can help explain how people respond to the pandemic with psychologists Ellen Peters and Jay Van Babel. And they're both uh, psychologists involved in the research in these areas. And there is something uh, from this research that probably ought to be noted. Uh, it's called optimism bias. And uh, there are, I think, set points that play in here. I'm a great believer in set points. That is the kind of temperament and emotional uh, ability that people have during crises as opposed to, well, on the one hand, the whole spectrum of whether they sink in a crisis and, and look at things very pessimistically or optimistically. Uh, but I'm wondering, Ellen Peters, before we go to our callers and emailers, about the people who are affected particularly by fear and by their emotions and uh, are susceptible to uh, having their attitudes change uh, and looking toward outgroups. We did a whole program on this as scapegoats. Uh, when the president of the United States talks about Kung flu, for example, and uses those kind of, those, those kind of racist de designations, I think it clearly has effect on people. And uh, people tend to scapegoat in these times, uh, especially where outgroups are concerned. What, from your research, can you give us some wisdom in terms of what can be done about that? Yeah, well, let's first talk a little bit about why it happens, um, because that, that I think is part, part of what might lead us towards solutions. Um, as human beings, we crave safety. We want to have a sense of control over our lives and certainly over our well-being. Um, and because of the, it, because it leaves us feeling stressed and anxious and powerless, we look for ways to reduce it. And if we can't reduce it in the physical world, because we're not sure what's going on in this pandemic, we try to reduce it in our minds. And so we see people to blame. We see solutions that work, or we think that the danger is over simply because we want it to be. Um, you know, all of us want to go back to our normal lives, and we want to be back together with family and friends. When you scapegoat like that, that that my guess is that that is one of the ways that we sort of get control back in our lives. We have something to be angry about, and when we feel angry, um, that that does help us feel more in control. We feel more certain. Um, in, in terms of solutions, the 
the, the solutions are tough. I think it's turning people back towards what other ways that they can exert control in their lives um, in this in this in these uncertain times. Well, forgive and, me, isn't it also making people just simply more aware of that we're all in this together and we all have to work uh, on behalf of a collective good or something along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it goes back to part of what Jay was saying and, and the idea, the, the importance of, of protecting ourselves and also protecting others, our family and friends, et cetera. Um, we, we don't want so, um, health workers to be at risk. We don't want our professors um, to be at risk, uh, or at least we hope we, they do. we, hope we don't. Uh, but, that, you know, that, that idea of coming all together and being together and coming up with solutions, um, I think is going to be critical to us moving forward in this pandemic. And let me go back to you, if I may, Jay Van Babel. Uh, here's Louise who asks, and I think you can perhaps uh, shed some light on her question. Uh, she wants to know, can you please talk more about the economic benefits of a robust public health response to COVID? Yeah, so I'm glad that question came up. Uh, essentially, there's a debate right now about whether we should keep things shut down and focus on managing the pandemic or whether we should open things up and focus on, focus on uh, improving the economy. It turns out that that's a false dichotomy. It's, it's the wrong question to ask. The research in economics and the popular opinion of most economists is that you open up the economy by managing in the pandemic. So I'm in New York City right now, and we were the world's hot spot of the pandemic a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. Um, now we're one of the safest places in the whole country, and we've done it by managing the pandemic, and now we're opening everything up slowly and safely as the rest of the country is actually going through it and starting to shut things down again. So if they had been wise from the front of this issue in the United States and uh, focused on public health, they would be able to open up their economy now too. Instead, they're starting to close things down or go back or shut things down. And so that's important for people to understand that it's not a choice between the econo economy and health. Health is the key to opening the economy. You may want to respond to a comment, uh, Jay Van Babel, from one of our listeners, Trish, who writes, with all the conflicting, inconsistent blather coming from the federal, state, and local governments, I found myself disregarding them and following my own lead. I knew the mad press to open up was premature, and we are finding that to be true. Yeah, so what I do is I listen less to politicians and more to scientists. So, for example, I feel more comfortable listening to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's a world leading expert for decades and decades on these issues and many pandemics. And so if I take my advice for him, I do pretty well because he's not only leading the leading research, but he's reading all of it and sharing it with us. So I would tune in to the smartest experts that you can find on this and take their advice. Ellen Peters, you may want to respond to a comment from another listener. This is David who writes, of course, political polarization is a huge influence in understanding and compliance around COVID, but what about stupidity? It's not PC to say, but I believe a huge percentage of the population are a combination of willingly ignorant and stupid. Dunning-Kruger effect on full display here. Thoughts? Uh, you know, um, sure. So, uh, so, so, so there's one no, interesting uh, thing that... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, there's something interesting that we've been finding in our data recently which is um, you know, what, one way you could think about people who don't know as much is people who don't know math as much because this pandemic is so chock full of, of statistics. But it's actually the people who are less numerate, those people who are less good at math, who um, actually are taking on more protective behaviors than the people who are, who are better at math. And so the, you know, there may be some people who, um, th there certainly are people vary quite a bit in their intelligence, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, th that they're, th that they're 
that they're willfully doing it or that they're, they're, they're taking on uh, worse behaviors. Um, in fact, one of the things that you can think about is that a, a lot of what Jay's advice just was, that listening to scientists, that doesn't necessarily involve having to process a lot of information. That's listening to someone say, here's the right thing to do. I've processed that information for me. So listen to what I'm saying and look at what I'm doing. You'll notice that Anthony Fauci always wears a face mask. He always shows up in a face mask. And that, that, that listening and seeing um, doesn't necessarily have to involve... Um, it doesn't necessarily have to involve tons of brain power. Well, I don't mean to suggest that uh, people of, of strong faith are lacking in brain power or gray matter, but I was struck by a video that went, you should give the choice of words here, viral uh, in Palm Springs, Florida, where people were arguing vociferously and passionately against wearing masks, and they were tying it up to uh, God and to breath that was given us by God and to the fact that also we should be able to not only breathe free in terms of uh, our faith, but we should be able to believe in freedom that includes not wearing a mask. So the argument was both faith-based as well as political. But let me bring a caller aboard here. Mike, that's you. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. So I just wanted to bring in um, that one of the reasons why the discussion about wearing masks was complicated, especially at the beginning, is those of us that are trained to wear masks are thinking about protecting ourselves, the mask wearer. And so we're trained that you have to have a very specific mask for the right contaminant and that that mask has to be properly fitted. And initially, a lot of experts just felt that a, a common populace, you know, a lay person isn't going to wear the right mask. They're going to wear it loosely. It's not going to help. And what they understand now is that it's really switched in how they're looking at it that the mask is to protect everybody else more than it's to protect the mask wearer. And so that's really like a change in thinking about masks, which relate to pandemic, as opposed to all this other training for protecting yourself from environmental contaminants. So um, I think that really confused the issue early on, but now the data is clear, wear a mask for everybody else's benefit and to stop the transmission of the pandemic. And I'm going to jump off because I'm on cell, but thank you all very much for the conversation. Yeah, and thank you for the call. And I think Ellen Peters, Mark, uh, Mike makes an important point. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I would add that there is some small protective benefit for the self um, based on some uh, based on some of the evidence, but most of the, but the evidence mostly points towards we're helping other people. The the problem has been that there's a complicated. There's been complicated messages about masks in the sense that the science has changed and evolved over time, but that is what science does. Science is two steps forward, one step back. We are always learning more information, and that's what's happening with masks. It's just part of the scientific process, and especially in an uncertain situation. But now, as, as, the, as Mike was pointing out, um, the, the message is complicated because the mas masks can be used in different ways. Um, it, it's one thing for healthcare workers, it's something else for, for people out in, out in the public. And so the use of masks is also kind of complicated. And it's those kind of messages that we need to start getting out there in a clear, simple and repetitive way so that everybody gets it um, from, from sources that can influence them. Well, when we talk about masks protecting other people, it brings me, and I go to you on this, Professor Van Babel, uh, to the whole divide that many feel between the economic concerns and the moral concerns. I mean, there are many who say, you know, you're wearing a mask uh, it has to do with not only protecting yourself, but protecting other people. And that's the idea of, again, collective responsibility or something along those lines, the moral lines, if you will. 
uh, as opposed to those who say, you know, we're causing more harm by not opening up the economy sooner or not doing things quicker and faster and not letting people work at the jobs that they're used to working at. Yeah, so I think you hit on it right there. It's a moral issue. Um, and understanding it through that lens that you're protecting largely others is really important. And that's often compelling to people, uh, will convince them to do it. Um, it's also, to go back to this economic issue, going to open the economy faster. If I go to the grocery store, I have to wear a mask here and everybody else does and it makes all of us safer. It means the grocery store can say, stay open. It means the subways in New York can run. Um, so that's fundamental. And I just wanna tie it back to a, maybe an example that more, people are more familiar with, which is smoking. We used to see the issue of smoking as a choice of individual freedom. And that if people wanted to smoke, even once we had the science saying it was unhealthy, that they could do that if they wanted to their own bodies. It wasn't until we realized the secondhand effects of smoking were damaging that the public conversation changed and the conversation around freedom changed. It means you can no longer smoke on an airplane or in a daycare or at work because we realized it's harmful to all the other people around you, to the kids, to your coworkers, to your neighbors. It's also true and with seatbelts. It's true with yeah. a lot of things, yeah. Seatbelts too, yeah. Well, I'm interested, actually, since you're in New York, uh, Professor Babel, uh, getting a response to something from a listener named Todd who writes, politics aside, Governor Cuomo's leadership and clarity was able to herd a very large state and city to a successful management of COVID-19 spread so far. Stop reinventing the wheel, follow new leaders when the top fails. So it's interesting, just in the course of this hour, talking to both of you professional psychologists, we've heard from listeners who said you can't trust top leadership. And we hear from listeners who say, listen to the top leadership, particularly if I guess it conforms or aligns with your views. But it also shows to what extent leadership is integral to making decisions and taking risks. Yeah, I'm gonna say this. Uh, New York was hit really hard. We weren't ready for it. And, and there was quotes, for example, from our mayor um, saying people should stay, go out and do things as the pandemic was starting to unfold here. Um, so leadership wasn't perfect in New York for sure, um, but Cuomo took over things and was fantastic. And you can see the effects and consequences of good leadership. So it's not that you shouldn't listen to leaders, um, it's that you should pay attention to good ones and you can look at the consequences of their decisions to assess how good they are. And he's been following the science and he's been hammering it home, like uh, Dr. Peters keeps saying, over and over again in a consistent way. And at some point, it started to be the case where people from all across the country were listening to uh, Andrew Cuomo's briefings because they were so effective and clear and helpful. And so we do have the leadership here capable of doing it. And as I said, not all the leadership in New York was great, um, but the consequences of uh, Cuomo's leadership are manifesting every day. Now it's safe to walk outside in New York. Everything's slowly opening again. And so that is the consequence of good leadership on this issue. Once again, Jay Van Bavel is Associate Professor of Psychology at New York University. And here's Philip. Philip, join us. You're on the air. Good morning. Yes, thank you. Um, I live in Marin County, and um, it, it's clear the data is in. Um, we all need to wear masks to protect ourselves and to protect each other. Uh, there's a surge in Marin County. The numbers have been going up. And when you factor in what's going on at San Quentin and the fact that those patients or those people are being transferred into the Marin hospitals, um, you have a situation that's really getting out of control. However, when I walk around Fairfax and drive around uh, the communities in and around Fairfax, 
it seems the message around masks is are not is not getting through. People aren't wearing masks. They may be social distancing, but the greatest percentage of people are riding their bikes and walk, going for their afternoon walks and uh, uh, enjoying life as if nothing was happening. And that's disturbing, particularly because I am a senior. Well, I thank you for those observations, Philip. It is disturbing to hear. Um, though many make, we're not going to necessarily get into the science here, but many make the argument that if you're outside and you keep social distancing, it's not necessarily all that imperative to wear a mask, although it's certainly suggested and strongly urged and recommended by many who have done the science, like Dr. Fauci. Um, here's a question from Martha. I'll go to you, Ellen Peters. Uh, she wants to know if you can explain why the more numerous are less likely to take virus precautions. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, to be quite honest, it completely surprised us. We actually expected the um, we, we actually expected the highly numerate to be the ones who are taking more uh, viral protections. Uh, for, for the less numerate, what we think is going on is that they are less likely to use the numbers and they're more likely to pay attention to emotional reactions. Those emotional reactions guide their, their, their risk perceptions and, and guides the, the actions that they take, like these protective behaviors. The highly numerate, on the other hand, we think that they're taking a more sort of psychologically distant perspective on COVID-19. We can see that in, um, in, in how they write about COVID-19 in some of our studies. Um, and those differences then um, may result in them kind of seeing the situation as very abstract um, and they experience less emotion as a result. And because we're experiential creatures, including the highly numerate, um, if you have, if you have lower, less fear, lower emotional reactions in the situation, you're likely to perceive less risk and feel like you don't need to take as many protective behaviors. That's what we think is going on. And again, psychologist Ellen Peters directs the Center for Science Communication Research at the University of Oregon. And here's Rochelle. Rochelle, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Yes, I was wondering, like, psychologically, what's the best way to deal with people who aggressively flaunt the um, safety protocols, like by approaching you without a mask or challenging you for wearing a mask? Ellen Peters, some thoughts about that? We did a whole uh, hour on shaming in a pandemic. Uh, it kind of ties in with that a bit, but people do get very aggressive. Yeah, I, I haven't actually personally seen it yet, although I've seen some videos online. Um, honestly, if it were me in that situation and I had someone approaching me directly, I would look to diffuse the situation as quickly as I could and walk away. Because in that case, it's um, you're, you're not going to change their mind. They, they have that they're being aggressive and they, they are not going to change their mind. There's pretty much nothing you can say in the moment that will make a difference. Um, but you can protect yourself. And I would argue that that's just walk away as quickly as you can. I'm going to read a comment okay, from great. Sandy. Oh, you want to add your voice here, Jay Van Babel? Excuse me. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with Dr. Peters. I would avoid uh, confrontation. Um, and the other thing that the police are doing in New York that I think is good is they have masks and they're handing them out to people who don't have them. So um, assuming it's not an aggressive person, if you have an extra one and carry around some, um, you can just give them to people because you can get them cheaply in bulk. So that's another way to deal with people who don't have masks is just start with a generous assumption that they forgot to bring one or don't realize how valuable they are and uh, offer one if you have one. Well, some more thoughts on masks. Sandy writes, I'd like to offer that wearing a mask is a sign of patriotism. I'd like to see a public service announcement that states, quote, wearing a mask protects your fellow Americans, end of quote. Not wearing a mask means you do not care about your country. 
And Kyle writes, the U.S. blew it with the initial response about masks. Asian countries were on board immediately, and the U.S. media, including some NPR segments, was mocking them for believing in snake oil without ever considering the possibilities that they are effective. Even with a perfect initial response, masks were going to be a hard sell. And a question, I'll go to you on this, Jay Van Babel. Uh, Joe writes, with an average worldwide lifespan of 72 years, there is a death rate of more than 1.5 million per week. Tell us why we need to be so concerned about 0.5 million dying in five months. Um, I care about it because it's people's lives. Um, it's the same way we try to manage all kinds of things in society. Like I said, secondhand smoke. Um, it's not killing as many people as COVID is, in part because we've managed and regulated it. And so that is something that we make a decision with society all the time about how to reduce uh, harm. And remember that the harm from COVID isn't just the deaths, which are tragic, it's all the hospitalizations. It's all the people who die because they don't have access to a ventilator because the hospitals get overrun with COVID. It's the economic devastation that happens when people have to go into quarantine and can't go to work or all of their coworkers have to go into quarantine. And so there's so many consequences that are so devastating for the society. And again, this is not just America. You can simply look around the world to see the devastation in almost every single other country on earth to realize this is not a matter, a matter of us uh, react overreacting to it. Well, here's Bill who says, seriously, how many seniors are dead because Cuomo forced nursing homes to accept people with COVID into a target rich environment? Again to you, Jay Van Babel. Um, yeah, I, I obviously there are imperfections in leadership. And, and as I said, New York was devastated. Uh, the reaction that benefited us that we're benefiting from now was around uh, eventually taking all the public health suggestions that we should have taken earlier and would have prevented more deaths. Um, but having taken them, now we're preventing future deaths and the economy is opening. So I don't want to fully defend all the decisions that uh, our leadership made here. And I said there are some examples of where it clearly did not work. Um, but once it got going, they made good decisions uh, on the whole that if you look right now around this country, which states are increasing or decreasing in COVID infections and mortality, um, New York has been plummeting continuously for the last month, in part because we have adopted these public health uh, behaviors. But you don't have to trust me. You can go look at the data and see what the change has been. And here is a question for you, Ellen Peters, from a listener in Virginia. She says, I'm wondering if the psychologists are digging deeply enough to understand why people who are into math are less compliant with recommendations for COVID. Could it be that they take the time to do the math and see the statistics more clearly. 98% of active COVID cases are mild to moderate symptoms. The mortality rate continues to go down, which statistically makes sense as more testing is done. It changes the baseline. Yeah, so so we actually don't know that much about, about why exactly the, the effect exists. There are a number of different explanations. Uh, Virginia's explanation is actually positive, is actually plausible. You, you can think about um, uh, the idea that, you know, Current, current infections are still relatively low if you think about it with respect to the entire United States. And so any individual's likelihood of getting infected is relatively low. Well, what, forgive what I me, argue, I think it's been uh, pretty much refuted that the numbers going up are not just tied to testing, as some would make it seem or make it appear. There are other factors involved in these surges, and some of them have to do, unfortunately, with opening up and protests. And as a caller mentioned earlier, prisoners being moved to a place like San Quentin, which was infection-free and now has over 1,000. Uh, lots of things are going on other than just testing, bringing the numbers up. But the caller, Virginia's point is, I think, uh, an important one. The mortality rate 
is in many people's minds when they look at the numbers, they think, well, my odds are not necessarily as bad as I thought they were. Uh, they're in fact uh, perhaps pretty decent, and all things being considered, in terms of not dying at least. Right. So the the odds might be not that bad. The the problem is the half a million people, um, the the half a million people who have already died. Each one of which, and this is going back to what what Jay was saying, each one of which has a name. So we know that Annie Glenn, John Glenn's um, uh, wife, died uh, died of COVID. Uh, we know of a bus driver in New York uh, who where, where a passenger um, coughed on him on his route. Um, he ended up coming down with COVID and passing away. Each of those individual people are, are individual lives with all of their own families and friends. Um, and so it, it may be that the, that, that the likelihoods are low, the, the, the outcomes are catastrophic. Uh, there, and then there's also all of the other consequences of COVID that, that Jay was talking about around the ideas of, you know, if, if you get sick, you have to quarantine. Who's gonna take care of you? And what kind of burden is, put, is being put on them? Um, all the pain and suffering of the disease itself. Let me bring another caller on here. Neil, join us. You're on the air. My call. I'm just wondering what the consequences should be for business owners who choose to bring their employees back to work. It doesn't seem like much can be done to convince individuals on this issue if they choose to be that ignorant. But uh, Gavin Newsom was very against uh, the Warriors reopening, made a very strong statement about it. However, he rolled right over for Elon Musk and brought his employees back to work with disastrous consequences. Well, Shouldn't that's a, que a good question, Neil. It, it really ties in with responsibility. And uh, I've been talking about morality and responsibility with you, Jay Van Bevo. You want to weigh in here? Yeah, so I'm not a moral philosopher, so I don't want to uh, weigh on on what whether businesses should open or not. Um, those are complex issues based on the business and, and what health procedures they're taking. Um, but I think it's obvious at this point that many businesses are going to reopen. And so I think at that point, it's really critical that business leaders, um, CEO, the C-suite, senior managers, get the best scientific knowledge they have about how to open in the safest way possible. So obviously the decision about reopening is up to them. Uh, and in some states, there's strict guidelines. Unfortunately, in many states, there are not. And so that's why I think it's really critical that business leaders take the initiative in either reading the science or consulting with scientists about what they can do to create effective policies and not just policies about whether or not you have to wear a mask, but what can they do to ensure and nudge their uh, staff and their customers to follow those policies so that they re dramatically reduce everybody's risk. Um, so I think to me, that's the big question and the important one because business has a huge role in protecting the American public here. Um, and if they take the right uh, actions and use the right scientific data and, and knowledge, they can be uh, much more effective. Well, we're getting a lot of comments, as you might imagine, about masks. Let me read some of them. Jonathan writes, any kind of mask is better than no mask. It's all a matter of degree. Why does everyone overthink this so much? And Peggy says, isn't it also necessary to wear eye protection? Uh, Leslie writes, keep it simple. How about signage promoting the saying, if you are not wearing a mask, are you spreading the virus? And Jessica, or Jessia, excuse me, writes, please remind people that masks must cover both the mouth and nose. So many don't cover their noses. Uh, and here's a listener who tweets, uh, everyone in my household follows the guidelines, but the rules could be very confusing. For example, the San Francisco Health Department issued a new rule that masks with valves are not allowed, but that rule is not observed by many businesses. And here's Paul who writes, sorry to be so cynical, but Mr. Trump's nearly pathological narcissism would suggest that he and his adherents don't give a damn about protecting others if it inconveniences them. 
We're coming up on the end of the hour here, and I just want to get some wisdom from uh, either or both of you. And let me begin. Uh, well, obviously, let me get a final caller in here. Natalie, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just, uh, I really appreciate um, the perspectives from scientists and from psychologists. However, with my experience with my family being very right wing, um, I know that they, this is really should be included, including moral philosophy. If we, if we don't include moral philosophy, are we talking in circles because they believe in God's will and they feel protected by their God? Well, uh, before uh, Professor Van Balen said he's not a world philosopher, neither is Ellen Peters, neither am I, but I think the caller makes a point certainly well worth uh, considering and ruminating on. I'm just wondering, with seconds left here, Ellen Peters, if you could say something about maybe direction for policymakers that you think would be particularly preeminent here? Um, yeah, we're, we're in an infodemic as well as a pandemic, and interventions and messages have to be based on science and evidence. And I presume your total agreement, Jay Van Babel? Yeah, and I would say that religious leaders, many of them from many different faiths, have said how important it is to protect your health. And so the dictates that people are reading from God aren't coming directly from God. They, we need religious leaders to take a lead on this. Well, we will leave it there. And I want to extend thanks to both of you. Jay Van Babel, again, is Associate Professor of Psychology at New York University. And Ellen Peters is psychologist and director of the Center for Science Communication Research at the University of Oregon and author of and numeracy in the wild, misunderstanding and misusing numbers. We're here with you Monday through Friday and always enjoy hearing from you. If you have something you want to say about what's on forum, what you heard, or would like to hear, just email us forum at kqed.org. For all of us at KQED, I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.